and I'm here today with Natalie Serber, and we're talking about her fantastic story, Children Are Magic, which was first published in One Story Magazine. Hi, Natalie. Hi, Kelly. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here chatting with you. Thank you. I'm really glad that you are here because I absolutely love this story. So amazing. And there's so much to talk about. I'll get right into it with like just a very easy question to enter. I loved the main character's name, Barrett. And I was just curious where you came up with her name. Um, You know, that's I mean, you say it's an easy question, but it's actually a question with a story. It's with it's got a comet tail. I had a friend from college and it was their last name and we were very good friends and um we're no longer friends we we had a very painful falling out but when i was writing the story that hadn't happened yet and i just wanted to use the name and and i'm in love with the name and i think it suits her so well i couldn't imagine changing it i loved it too and i thought it's a very strong name mhm in my mind, but okay. So with the daughters, there are four daughters in the story. We don't get their ages. Instead, we get what they're doing, which I love too. Sheila's texting, Vanessa's rereading Harry Potter, Zoe's helping her mother look for River and River, the youngest child is hiding. Barrett has lost her belt and she's lost her youngest daughter. (laughs) And I just related, I have four kids too. And I related to the chaos of that moment. So do you have four children or no, I have two kids. I have a son and a daughter and they're close in age. So I did not have the impact of, or the tornado of four children close in age going through the house. But I certainly remember those mornings trying to get everybody off to school and into the car and teeth brushing, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And you really can't do much else. And so, um, okay. And I just want to mention, and I want to pick the story apart or deconstruct it as we do here, but I also wanted to just mention all these fantastic lines that I loved. So here are a few of them in the crime scene that was Sheila's room. (laughs) It's great. The return of gray roots at her parts and temp and Temple was a little deaf. She endured every six weeks. Um, her bedroom is too Von Trapp. Von Trapp, her her husband says, her bedroom table holds a wine glass with a scab of Cabernet at the bottom, which I just thought that is fantastic. Really. Thank you. There are a lot of so there are so many poetic moments. And then the last one I wrote down was the teacher at Children Are Magic Preschool is named Susan and she has translucent earlobes poking through her thin brown hair. And that is so vivid. And I've seen that so many times. (laughs) We all have seen that. (laughs) Um, I used to endure the little death every six weeks when the gray roots reappeared. Um, So finally, I just quit dyeing my hair and now it's gray all the time. So it's not like a reminder, you know? Yeah, it looks great too. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so she finally locates her daughter. So we're in the beginning of the story. She finally locates her daughter under Fort Knox, which is a gun locker that her husband has purchased. And she's hiding there with naked. She's gripping her blue plastic pony. And so tell us a little bit about Fort Knox and the idea behind that. Well, we um, we used to live in a beach town, Santa Cruz, and we used to belong to a temple there. And I was just very surprised at the number of families that kept guns. I I was shocked by it, actually. 
um, never having held a gun or coming from a pacifist family as I do. And, um, you know, of course, we hear stories out in the world and bring them into our own fiction, not like bad art friend. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But I did hear a story about a family that had a gun locker in their bedroom. That family kept a pig and this family has Jolene. Um, Maybe I've changed the pig's name. Maybe it was Esmeralda in the version you have. No, it's Jolene. And I was like, is that Jolene from Dolly Parton's Jolene? Yeah, I love that. (laughs) Um, So this particular family, they were raising the pig for food and the husband ended up shooting the pig from the bedroom window. And so when I was writing this story, I thought that's where it was going to go. You know how when you write, you enter into a story and you have a sort of vague target that you're going towards. And then And I like to keep it vague and shadowed because I feel if I'm too wed to, for instance, using that anecdote from the world, then I don't have an opportunity to make discoveries. And what I discovered is this husband, Barrett's husband, Martin, would not shoot the pig from the window. Barrett's husband, Martin, loves the pig. And loves having the pig, his porcine mistress, he calls her. So even though that's why the gun locker appeared in the beginning, I ultimately didn't use it. So I guess I went against Chekhov's rule that if a gun appears in the first act, it has to go off. But it kind of does because we've got Pony. That's right. Pony acts as um, a A surrogate. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's not something, so it goes along with the theme of complication in the story because it's complicated. Uh, You know, it's a very uh, progressive, probably place to live. The people Mm -hmm. in the story seem very progressive and yet you have guns too, which is unexpected. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They all want a dog, but Martin thinks the pig is funny and temporary. And I just was curious about, well, the decision to bring the pig in was probably because of this family that you knew. So then she sees the black bra dangling from the pole beans. (laughs) And this is the moment where I was kind of like, oh my goodness, (laughs) what's coming next? And it's another um, red herring sort of. Mm -hmm. Which I had a different intention when I included it. I did have a different intention. And then first of all, I want to back up by saying this story did not pour out of me you know, with grace and agility in, you know, in an overnight session with a snifter of brandy beside me. This story took years, literally years to write. So these red herrings were going to be where the story went. I had different plans for the bra. I had different plans for the gun. I had different plans for the pig. But as I kept writing more and more about these characters, it felt like I was foisting the actions upon people that these people weren't. And I think it's interesting because as a writer, you know, so I should back up and just say this story is um, integral in the collection that I'm just now finished working on, uh-huh. and the characters appear again and again throughout. Oh, terrific! And yeah, yeah. 
So Barrett and her family are all throughout the collection or a story circle, I think is what I would call it. And so as I started working more and more and getting to know with these people and pulling them out of me, because we pull all of our characters out of ourselves, the bad parts of ourselves, the funny parts of ourselves, the parts we wish weren't there, whatever. And I wasn't pulling out the people that did those actions from the real world that got my imagination flowing. Like, like I said, um, Martin loves Jolene and wouldn't shoot Jolene and is not going to eat Jolene. So tell me about how long, how it, okay, it started, how many years ago did you, is this the first one that you wrote in this story circle? No, I wrote one before this, which was published in Ziziva. It's called um, La Voix du Song. And it's also funny. I think I have to change the name because initially the main character was French and the song of blood means basically blood is thicker than water. It's the, it's the French version of that. And this is a story about a family in which the son gets arrested for breaking into the SPCA to steal a dog. And so this is about their marriage and their son. And that was the first one I wrote. And in that one, the main character, whose name is Trina, was going to Barrett's house in the next story for the dinner party. Oh, my gosh. Great. Bye. And, and the um, I'm so glad you pointed out the scab of wine, because near the very end of La Voix du Song, which I'll have to change the name of, as I said, she, Trina is sitting at the table with her son, and he actually... Um, has invited a houseless teen to live in his bedroom unbeknownst to his mother. And the mother just discovers this young girl living in her son's bedroom. And they're sitting around the table trying to figure out what to do. And she's drinking wine. And at the very end, there's just grit at the end of her glass, like blood. And so then in the next story, it's a scab. So I'm trying to have those things that will resonate in the reader's head, even if the reader doesn't recognize that they're there. Right. And I think you have a lot of things like that in this story. A lot of things I didn't catch in the first reading that resonated with me later. And though none of them are coming up, I have them here in my notes. So we'll get to them. (laughs) But But I want to say, I mean, I'm so lucky to have you here as a reader because not a lot of readers are going to read it twice. So, you know, thank you for doing that. But I think that even if you don't read it twice, you make that subconscious you know, connection, and it makes the story immediately richer, even if you don't know exactly why, I -hmm. think. But yeah, it's always better when you get to deconstruct it and and find those moments. Mm -hmm. I love the the part where Barrett gets to um, Children of Magic, Mm -hmm. and River is shooting with, you know, shooting at everybody with the pony. She tells everyone that she was hiding underneath Fort Knox. And then Barrett says, oh, hell damn it. Here it came. The last thing Barrett wanted children or magic to learn about. Barrett threw her whole self into everything she did and still felt inadequate. Wrong clothes, wrong food in her refrigerator, wrong television permitted in her home. And I just thought that if that isn't the way that most women feel Mm -hmm. or most mothers feel. Yeah. Isn't that sad? And I'm not sure why that is. It's terrible. I mean, even though I wrote those words and I'm hearing you read them right now, I just have goosebumps thinking about it. It, I mean, I I hope that doesn't sound egotistical. No, no, but it's so because it's so true. Yes. And it's why do we why the heck do we do that to ourselves? 
It's strange. I think women are hard on other women. Hearing you read that line right now is such a gift to me because I just revised the last story in the collection this morning. And there's a moment when Barrett, who, well, I won't say too much, but she does, she makes some changes in her life. um, And she's standing in front of her refrigerator and she opens the door and she says to herself, Something along the lines, she looked at the food and she's like, wow, I would really like the people that eat this kind of food. And I had totally forgotten about that line. I mean, I haven't looked at that story for a while. So, oh my gosh, the mind is always knitting things together. And in the last story in the collection, is she older? No, it only takes place in um, nine months. Oh, in nine months. Okay. The whole story circle. Okay. Because I was just thinking that, you know, when you get older, you stop trying to please as many people and you start being more forgiving. Yeah, because life has beaten the crap out of you. And so you're like, <laughs> exactly. I no longer care what anybody thinks about me. <laughs> I just want to drink my scab of wine. <laughs> <laughs> and also everybody else has had the crap beaten out of them too. So you get a little more understanding. It's so true. It's so true. Okay, so. <laughs> Then Barrett gets home after the dry cleaner, the feed store, the liquor store, and a board meeting, and her hus- to find her husband teasing their nanny Rowena in the kitchen. And it says, Rowena was swayable and gullible, Martin's favorite traits in a woman. And again, and then her jeans are tight, her midnight blue toenails peak fr- from the sandals. Um, Rowena had plenty of cleavage. Yeah, so Rowena is... Um, a scary character. I'm, I was getting very frightened for Barrett. And then I loved when, and this is a moment where I think that you added something that I didn't catch the first time, but then I certainly did. Martin leaned against the counter, thrusted carrot into me, into the peanut butter jar. And I thought, Oh, okay. That's right. <laughs> You know, Rowena is one of the main characters in the book, too, and she has quite a different trajectory than what you're expecting. I love that. I'm so glad. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad that it isn't what I expect. Okay, and I love the fact that he's wearing his scrubs and clogs as if to announce the Jewish doctors in the house, which is wonderful. I just um, have been on a little kick of rereading Laurie Colwyn. And she has a line in in one of her early novels that says that the character always had a look on her face like she was the only Jewish person at the dinner table. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Okay, so clearly now as a reader, I'm thinking, okay, she's jealous. um, And I just wanted to know about this moment. What were you well, when you so you kind of told us that when you were first writing this section, you were thinking it was going to go one way. Mm-hmm. And so you were with the reader on that when you were first crafting that. Right. Novel. When that bra landed in the bean uh, outside in the garden. Yeah. I had a certain idea of where I wanted it to go. And then through many drafts, it just didn't feel natural to this family. Mm-hmm. Um, and also not to Rowena, who is a bit more vulnerable than she comes across. And so she really did take her bra off because she was sweating. Is that true? Okay. Yeah. Which I've never seen anyone do either. (laughs) I mean, I guess if you were alone way out on a farm somewhere and you knew no one was going to come by, but. But, Okay. I want to push back on this a little bit, not to be outside sweating, but I, I'm going to reveal something. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. 
<laughs> you have done that. <laughs> Not that. But, you know, haven't you seen people like unclasp their bra and pull it out their sleeve? Yes, I definitely saw that, especially in, I feel like, especially in high school for some unknown reason. I don't know why we did that. I have been on a transatlantic flight, so uncomfortable, you know, and yes. and taken off my bra under my, in that under my clothing way, because I just wanted to be comfortable. So yeah. that's kind of what I imagine. Like, I don't imagine her whipping off her top, right. taking her bra and putting it back on. Um, maybe I need to make that more clear. No, no, I, I actually didn't think she whipped her shirt off too. Yeah. I just thought where she was, I was pr- picturing like the suburban setting. Oh, I see. Know, that it's not like a huge farm and that, you know, yeah, yeah. like, and she was, I was picturing her in a t-shirt. So it would mm-hmm. be obvious that she didn't right. have a bra. Whereas on an airplane, you'd be in a sweater or something. Right. Probably hide it. Right, right, right. Right. In the dark. Right. So it's a little bit more courageous. <laughs> For her. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Totally. All right. So as Barrett is standing there taking all this in, you know, in the kitchen, um, Martin puts his hand on her hip, the boyfriend's zone. And after 19 years, she still felt a jolt. And so that heightened the tension for me too, because I thought, well, she's not tired of him. You know, the description of him is not like he's super sexy. No. He's funny. It sounded to me like he's funny. He's charming. He makes people feel good, but you know, it's not like you would stop in your tracks when you saw, no. but she still feels that jolt. So then I thought, okay, oh, is she going to get hurt? Mm-hmm. And that was an interesting thought because I think that leads into the theme that you might've been pursuing. I'm not sure, but his eyes don't shift from Rowena. So he definitely is looking at Rowena loading the dishwasher, correct? Right. He is. And I will say that in the revision that I've done, you know, of this as a story in the story circle, I have softened that scene up a little bit about his flirtation with Rowena. Yes, he flirts with her, but it's not quite as obvious. It's a little more subtle and, you know, maybe doesn't get as big of a me too hashtag. Okay. Yeah. Because then she has to deflect, deflect, deflect. Right. She not have to do that. In the she has to deflect, but maybe only one deflection, not three. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just a little bit. And and Barrett is a little bit more vocal about it. Actually, I think that's the bigger change in the scene is that Barrett's a little bit more vocal about it. Kind of like stop, stop teasing. Yeah. yeah. And it's really just a remnant from where I thought the story was going to go. Okay. And so I think it's fine to have spur trails. I think it's really interesting actually to have spur trails. This story sprawls. This is a long story, but red herrings that are just frustrating, I think, and and sort of misleading in a way where the reader feels cheated. I want to avoid that. I think it's fine to have like ideas proliferating in the reader's mind of where it might go, but if they get fully drawn into, oh, he's sleeping with the nanny and then it doesn't end up being so there might be a level of feeling cheated or, or um, misreading. And I I never want to make a reader not feel smart. My goal is to make a reader feel smart. Yeah. And I didn't mean red herring in that way, but I see what you're saying. It might've been the wrong term to use. Um, No, no, but there were those shifts and uh, I, I, they heightened the tension, but I liked the fact that they're, they didn't go in an expected direction. Mm-hmm. I remember one time I wrote a story, you know, and they, and the person who read it was like, yeah, I expected it to go exactly where it went. <laughs> and you yeah. don't want that either. Um, wow. So 
What do you mean by spur trail? What is Well, you know how when you're on a hike and you're going to the top of the mountain for the big payoff or to the waterfall for the big payoff, and then there'll be a little sign that says, um, Captain's Overlook or or whatever, and you walk it, maybe it's only like a quarter of a mile or less, and you get to that place and then it ends. Right. You know, and then you, have and to then turn, you turn around and come back, which can be a nice enhancement and valuable and is certainly a wonderful thing in a novel because you that's how life is and you have the time to do that in a novel. Um, in a short story, I think you have to be more careful about your use of words. I mean, you you have a limited number and everything needs to build towards the end, but you also want the tension. And so I think making the reader wonder and be curious about, you know, why are there guns? What it, you know, what's with that bra? What's with this flirtation? As long as when it turns out that they're not um major features that the reader doesn't feel cheated, as I said. Right. I think Alice Monroe is the best at that kind of thing. You get to the end of the story and you're like, oh my gosh, of course this is where it was going, but why didn't I recognize it, you know, in the best way? She is unbelievable. I totally agree. I always think about Labor Day dinner. Is that? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, that's such an amazing story. And you do not have any idea where that's going, but then when they almost get in the crash at the end, you're like, of course. And the way that she describes that truck driving through the cornfield with the lights out. Yeah. It's and what about vandals? Do you remember her story, Vandals? It starts with this adult woman and her boyfriend going to a house and completely vandalizing it. Oh my gosh, yes. Do you remember that? I do, but I don't remember how it ends. So she, and then she, she's doing it as a favor for the woman who owns the house, but is in the city for the week. She goes to, che- or for the winter, she goes to check on the house. But when she's checking on it, she absolutely vandalizes it. And then she calls the woman whose name I can't recall and says, oh my gosh, you can't believe what happened. It's a mess. Your taxidermy is torn up. You've got paint spilled on the, and then it goes back to her childhood. And she used to spend a lot of time with this woman and her husband. And then I don't want to ruin it for your. Okay. Reading. I'm going to reread. It's, it's so good. And when you get to the end, you're like, cause in the beginning, you're like, why in the heck is she vandalizing this house right. and talking to this woman? Like she's helping her. Right. Oh, I can't wait. Okay. Don't, it's- don't. So good. I vaguely remember that, but I don't remember anything else. So I will reread it because that would be vandals. Vandals. Okay. Okay. So then, yeah, I went further down the trail thinking that, you know, Rowena's favorite flavor is blueberry. And then there's this frozen (laughs) sweatshirt in the van. Did other people do this? And there's blueberry blast Jamba juice. (laughs) So I'm thinking, oh my God. Rowena was wearing the sweatshirt and she was Was that when they were supposed to be picking up the kids? Anyway, did other people have that same feeling? Not that I've heard. No. Okay. Okay. Maybe they just haven't. Nobody's read it this closely and talked to me about it. Okay. (laughs) All right. So um, on page nine, we learned that in Barrett's childhood home, she had not had a garden or anything like it. Although she had, you know, driven past the orchards of pecans and peaches and the alleys of of poplar trees. So she's basically in that way, she's living this life that she's always wanted, right? She's staying at home, unlike her just from that, we know she's staying Absolutely. at home, exactly. unlike her business, who was always busy. But 
she is feeling like she doesn't matter because she says she says that later on, doesn't she? So mm-hmm. she's yeah. she's struggling with that. Yeah, she is struggling with that. I think I don't want to uh, describe other people's experiences, but I don't think it's that unique to be a woman home, making sure everybody's needs are met and feeling like her own needs are not met. Or a woman like Barrett, who is super intelligent and achiever running around trying to please everyone and doing so perfectly, you know, and And everybody else gets to have their faults. Martin gets to flirt with the maid. River is a pain in the butt throwing a chair at school. Sheila is a snobby one who wants to freeze her eggs, you know, and (laughs) Zoe is the most like her mother and worries Barrett the most. And Vanessa, of course, has taekwondo and literature. So she feels like everybody gets to be imperfectly human and she has to be perfect. And the moment she's not perfect is when she gets noticed and she doesn't know what to do about that. Right. Yeah. That is so true. Mm -hmm. I mean, and that's true also of river. I was thinking that that I was going to ask you about that later, but in the finals, you know, like, you know, river, she goes walking through the rooms and she sees how her daughters are all some different aspect of of womanhood Mm -hmm. and river is the one who's not going to kowtow to anyone. She's going to, you know, get her needs met no matter what. And it is because she's throwing tantrums and that's a way to, that's the only way sometimes that children have power Mm -hmm. in relationships, but that shouldn't be true of women. Right. Right. Okay. So but before we get to that, cause I want to go through the rest, but so she had, they have sex and he turns her around and it's not sexy and it doesn't feel sexy to her, but he thinks it is. Um, and then she has that moment where, um, and when, after he was spent and she was frustrated, she only stayed beside him. She only briefly stayed beside him, his eyes drifting close. And I thought, Oh God. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. how many times do people, do women especially do things for other people Mm -hmm. without any satisfaction? Mm -hmm. So is that, did I read that scene correctly? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, and then she satisfies herself with her great life hack with her uh, electric toothbrush. (laughs) How did I miss that? And then that becomes a sort of joke throughout. That, oh my uh, God, how did I miss that? <laughs> That's kind of scary that I missed. <laughs> I, maybe I'm a little too subtle. Okay. Yeah, I missed it. But that's <laughs> really funny that I did. I guess it's not always women, but more often women don't ask for what they need. She doesn't right. say to him, I don't really like this anonymous right. sex either. So she's not, she's also not asking for much. Right. Yeah. Right. I remember when I was a young woman, I wish I could remember the name of the play. I went up to um, UCSC and saw a play and it was about a woman. Gosh, it's just would be such a better story if I could remember the name. But there was a scene where the young she was a teenager and she was having sex, you know, and you could hear what she was thinking, like how Um, uncomfortable she was. I mean, that was part of the play, how uncomfortable she was, how unsatisfying it was and how frightened she was to express her needs because she might be rejected. 
And I remember as a young woman, I don't know how old I was, 18, 19, 20, seeing that play and just being blown away and being like, I'm not the only one. Right. It was such an astonishing moment for me to understand that every a lot of women do this. And it, I don't know, it always stayed with me. It always stayed yeah. with me. It's very, very common. And I, you're right. I don't think you realize that when you're young mm-hmm. at all. So the problem with Barrett is not thinking that he's not, um, she's in menopause and she's in that unpredictable phase where you have like more desire, but, Mm -hmm. um, but you don't maybe feel as desirable, but he's definitely still attracted to her. So that's not the problem. And then we get back to children or magic and, and, um, River starts, she loses the pony and she's having a fit and everybody like stops and goes into action. Like, so she matters, right? Because she's uh-huh. having this fit. But then she says, you're not my real mommy. And I just thought, what what was going on there? Well, you know, the whole piece is really about identity. So much about identity. And Barrett identifies as a mommy to these four girls. And she identifies, you know, her identity is wrapped up in motherhood, in wifehood, in the house she keeps. Um, in sort of a 1950s zeitgeist. But I also, I mean, I say that and I I don't want to diminish it because I think all of those things are incredibly important. And that was the choice I made. I was a stay-at-home mom with both of my kids and I was delighted to be a stay-at-home mom. And my identity still is wrapped up in motherhood and in the house I keep and how I cook and all of those things. But what's happened to poor Barrett is that that's all she has. Right. And here she's got a teenager who is pushing her away. She has a self-reliant Vanessa who doesn't need her in the way. The one child that needs her the most is the most worrisome because she feels like she's going to make this, that child Zoe is going to make the same mistakes or same choices that Barrett did. And she doesn't want that for her girl. So when River says, you're not my really mommy, it's like a low blow, man. It is a low blow. (laughs) Because that is what she wants more than anything. And it's amazing that a kid could figure that out and hit you exactly where it hurts. But that is something that kids are very good at too. Very, very Very good at at. So we have to talk about how, so Barrett's life is very privileged. The table is set when she gets Uh back. Totally. Yeah. The man is the chef, the very sexy chef is cooking this Indian dinner. I mean, she basically doesn't have to do anything, which only contributes to her feeling that she doesn't matter, which is an interesting conundrum because she's very, very lucky. Mm -hmm. And yet all of those things are making her feel even more worthless. Right. And also it's, I mean, I think that that's a potential thing I could get raked over the coals for in the story is the Mm -hmm. amount of privilege that Barrett has And, you know, who is she to complain kind of thing? And well, yeah, you can't can't control. I just read um, Wayward by Dana Spiota, which I love. And it's about a woman in her 50s and very privileged. And then she decides to leave the suburbs and live downtown. And it is fraught. But the woman is very self-aware in that she is in a fraught situation and the thing is like people get into situations and it's really not their fault. They're in a situation. 
Well, it's hard. You can't, you, it, it's definitely a fraught issue right now. I think it's a legitimate complaint to lobby against Barrett. Yes. And, um, you know, I can even hear voices like, why the hell is she whining so much? But um, identity, identity crises come to everybody. Right. And um, not everybody in the book is in the same socioeconomic place that Barrett and her husband are. And people have different complications and the world is, can I swear? Sure. <laughs> I don't know. Yes. Fucked up. Yes. And, you know, I go to therapy and I complain about the things that I complain about and I don't have a, I survived COVID. You know, we did not lose our jobs. We're very, very lucky. Right. And pain is pain too. I mean, so. Right. Yeah. You can't, um, it's impossible for people to know where they fall on the scale of, you know, existential pain and, but you just feel your own pain. That's all you can do. Yeah. And, you know, Barrett makes some missteps, but I don't think she's a bad person. Right. No, Um, but she makes missteps definitely. And she's privileged and she's entitled. I don't think Barrett is a Karen. I didn't get the sense she was a Karen that she would do anything like that. But um, I will tell you in the next story after this, um, Rowena's boyfriend is a dreamer. He's a DACA kid. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. His um, his family, his mother, father, and little sister have fled Guatemala and are trying to get into the United States. But, of course, they can't because of all the mess at the border. And he's completely freaked out. And they started as a Tinder date. And they've been dating for like six weeks. And suddenly she's caught up. 18-year-old Rowena is caught up in this huge saga and she just wants to be 18. Right. And so she does not end up being the biggest support to her boyfriend and they break up. And then the rest of the book, she's riddled with guilt. Right. Yeah. And um, Barrett helps her in a kind of Karen-y way, I will say, but helps her to work through it. But I would say also, like, I've seen this, you know, phenomenon in people who, um, you know, if if you know someone who has an illness and you haven't had it before, you don't really know the extent of how the illness is, you know, impacting their lives. I mean, that's what they say is great about fiction, right? That you can put yourself in, you know, it increases empathy and you put yourself in situations you wouldn't normally be in. So Right. And I think it's good, but okay. So don't always make the right choices. No, not at all. Yeah. Okay. So Barrett thinks back to the time that she and her sister Savannah were at the concert. And that was such a complicated scene too, which I absolutely loved because I do think that when you're that age and, you know, dealing with sexual assault or any sort of assault, you, you cannot unpack it. It doesn't Mm -hmm. even make sense. So I mean, it's about power and control. So you say, even still at her own table or in her own beautiful home, the experience left her strangely exalted and ashamed. Whenever she heard the famous song, she felt as if she had a lump of half-chewed meat in her throat. And this is because he's made her stay in the bathroom and she just pees in front of him, basically, right? Mm -hmm. But, But she done nothing. And so it says... 
so then I have in my notes, and this has something to do with the fact that wanting to be be desired also invites humiliation because there's no power in needing to be desired. Mm -hmm. People can either decide to desire you or not, and you're kind of at their whim. Mm -hmm. Also, you could be so eager to be desired that you will put up with anything. You will even put up with being asked to pee in front of someone if they are powerful enough which in some ways is as much a violation as anything else. I mean, yeah. Humiliation is a huge violation. Yeah. yeah. And you know, she was she didn't feel she had the power to tell him to leave. She was also titillated or or I, I don't know if that's exactly the right word, but flattered that he would choose her and he also stuck his hand in her bra. That's right. Yeah. And um then she was embarrassed that she'd wanted it, mm-hmm. you know, that a, right. a slice of her wanted it and embarrassed that she didn't act out, you know, push it away. And she, so she couldn't own the fact that she had desires and she was ashamed of the fact that she hadn't stopped it. And still at the table with all of her friends, where everybody's talking about Me Too situations in their lives or date rape or assault, she cannot bring herself to admit that she was a participant. Right. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But so it's because how old was she in the she was 17, right? Yeah, I don't remember. You, I think yeah. she's 17. So she's technically a child, but. I mean, it's still assault. I yeah. mean, even if if the power imbalance is there, then yeah. I think that it doesn't matter whether she she had every right. I mean, it was a Me Too moment for sure. Yeah, it was. And yeah. but she still as she also, something to happen, but she didn't want that to happen. Right. She wanted to be petted, not right. literally, but you know, like what a beautiful girl you are, you know. Yeah. And it's also the South. I imagine there's some. I'm not from the South, but I imagine there's a different bit of decorum about women's behavior than what I grew up with with a hippie mom in California. You know, right, <laughs> right. Yeah, there probably are people were yeah. having the door open for you, and you had to yeah. say, "Yeah, thank you." Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. It's just, it was all, all of the Me Too stuff was on my mind because when I was writing it, um, I think right around the time that Louis C.K. was uh, having his troubles um, or causing, excuse me, causing his troubles. So, you know, those women were forced to stay in, I mean, they weren't forced, but by the power structure, they felt they must stay in the room with him. And I wondered about that, you know, right. what, what that would be like for somebody, especially like Barrett, um, who has so much pride and tries to maintain decorum. So, and, but then she also has this boyfriend, right? Who, if she wants to go out, she has to give him a blowjob, which mm-hmm. already she's in a situation where she's putting up with way too much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, not unlike other girls her age. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the last line, you say naked and tired. She wanted to tell Martin about her complicated desires. She wanted his hands on her body. She re- she reached for his wrist. And so she's thinking about... Um, you know, the guy in the bathroom, she'd wanted him gone and she'd wanted him to want her. She'd wanted the callous finger on her breast. 
That's why the song still upset her. She neither pushed back nor participated. That's why she couldn't tell her friends the story tonight, as we talked about. And she's worried about her daughters and thinking about how each of them will react when inevitably they'll be Mm -hmm. in a situation like that. Right. Well, as she says, it's those kind of sexual, um, the sexual pressure, either a Me Too or an assault is more common than breast cancer. I mean, I don't know statistically, but if she's just Barrett is sitting at the table and she's looking around and everybody at the table has a story. And I think it's uh, three in 10 now women will get breast cancer. I think that's three in 10. Oh, I thought it was like one. Wow. It used to be one in 10. I think it's more now. It might be two. Don't quote me on it, but you know, her calculation, it's more than that, that will have had some sort of me too experience or sexual assault experience or Mm -hmm. um, discomfort, you know, something. Right. Yeah. So your final takeaway on that is that is what about this particular scene? That she's had a day. Man, Barrett's had a day. Yeah, she has. That is one long day. That is a long ass day. And and she's drunk. Yes. Right? And she just basically used the pony to knock off her kids. And (laughs) she knows she's going to have to apologize to everybody, which is what she does all the time. She's worried about everybody else's feelings. I think there's a line somewhere in there that it's like Sheila confronts her in the hallway yes, and, yes. Says, and she says, I think you overestimate my maturity or something yes, like that. Yes. Uh-huh. And but she's going to feel so, terrible about that tomorrow, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So like, this is right now she's like in, what's it called when you, the, um, where when before you're in hell and before you're in heaven, you're purgatory, lim- purgatory or limbo or yeah. um, the bardo, the bardo, the bardo. Mm-hmm. So yes. she's in the bardo right now. It's like <laughs> she's not hungover. She's kind of she's not really drunk, but she's kind of drunk. She's pretending to be asleep. Everybody's safe. You know, everybody's in her home safe. They right. might not be happy, but they're safe. Yeah. And she. She hasn't been able to confess to her husband ever about the story about this guy. You know, she's never told anybody. She didn't tell her sister when she went back into the concert. And so it's like, this is a moment where she can just ask for what she wants. And she Mm -hmm. just grabs Martin by the wrist and asks for what she wants. Oh, that's so interesting. So she takes control at the end. Right there, just for a minute. Just for a minute. Because, you know, we never, yeah, because we never do everything, you know, it's never clean. Right. Exactly. And of course, he's going to he's going to be fine with that. (laughs) But but more complicated would be like if, you know, when a woman wants something and the husband doesn't want it. Right. Then Mm. what happens? And the sense of rejection. Yeah, exactly. So she is. I mean, that's only my take. Mm -hmm. That's beauty of. And if you ask me two weeks from now and I've just looked at it, I might have a sort of different idea. Um, I think that's what's great about it. You can read it in a million different ways. I mean, he I think there's also under the surface some sort of problem in that. I mean, maybe everybody feels 
you know, even in the best relationships, sort of fragile, you know, when you're in your late forties, early fifties about, um, being, you know, are we safe in this relationship? Is something going to happen? But I wondered if that was signaling an underlying issue between them in that she doesn't seem to be completely safe with him. I mean, she's observing, she's observing him a little bit more than she would if they were really intimate. I guess one of the things that I, that I think about with all the women in this collection um, and Barrett in particular is that nobody knows the dark avenues of a private life. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody's life is so private and some people's life is private from themselves. Right. And I think Barrett might be one of those people when that her own inner life is private from her even. And I think that's what she travels through in the course of the book is at one point she says, why did I choose to make everybody else a priority? And in choosing to make everybody else a priority, I think that she stopped hearing herself. Right. And this time around the table with the women is um, a moment of her awakening that voice. Mm-hmm. Like, I wanted it and I was ashamed. What am I going to want and how am I going to let shame? You know, I wish, remember. In, uh, how am I going to overcome shame? <laughs> yeah, remember in Woody Allen, I know he's, I know that we're not supposed to like his him and whatever, it's complicated. But yeah. in that moment when, I think it was in Annie Hall when they're talking about something and he, turns around and pulls Marshall McLuhan from behind a standee to support his belief system. (laughs) Yes. yes. Well, Marshall McLuhan is right here. It's like at that moment at the table, if only Barrett could say, well, Brene Brown is right here. (laughs) Exactly. Wouldn't that be great if you could just walk around with Brene Brown (laughs) and get advice all the time? Or feeling shame. I'm feeling shame again, Brene Brown. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I know it's so I mean that is so true yeah maybe the most common emotion yeah yeah family. and so I just think that she doesn't have access to her own private life at this point because she's so caught up in everybody in in insecure attachment in everybody loving her and she just can't do enough. And Sheila is behaving totally age appropriately, you know, and River's giving her a run for her money. And yeah. I'm really interested to see how that's going to turn out in the book because, you know, you, you don't want to stay in insecure attachment. Right. For longer than you have to. I hope she makes her way through that. Well, also, I mean, it's not just, I mean, you have to accept responsibility for what you allow Mm -hmm. and you know what your natal family was like that brought up. It may not be the other people's behavior that is making you feel the insecure attachment. It could be your own, you know, what's hardwired into you from how you grew up. And so the choice isn't always to leave when you feel insecure attachment, the choice is to perhaps love yourself more so that you're not threatened at your core. If somebody doesn't respond to you in the way you wish. Right. Exactly. Well, that's beautiful. <laughs> um, so is there anything that I didn't ask you about the story that 
you wanted to discuss? So initially, my goal with this project was to write a book about women in a cooking club, which is why there's a hired chef. Because what um, I imagined is each story would be about a different woman and her family. And the women go from one another to each other's homes for a cooking lesson, which I used to do this years ago when I was younger. And um, we used to do it on Monday nights when chefs' restaurants were closed. And so we would all pitch in 40 bucks and oh. hire, there were 10 of us and we would hire a chef and go to one another's homes and learn how to cook Indian food or whatever. And so I thought I would write a book using that as the scaffolding to tell the stories of all these different women. And then as I was writing it, the stories became so complicated and not, um, and I mean that in a good way and not fluffy, not light, like the problems that people had, like Barrett's identity and what is she going to do were, were existential. And it didn't feel like I could then put the recipe for mango rice pudding at the end right. of the story. <laughs> you know, we just, yeah. that had been my the idea tone. that it would, each story would have a recipe at the end. And I had two other characters and I had written the whole thing. And it just didn't work at all. So I I'm I tell myself I'm a slow writer. I'm not sure I'm a slow writer. I'm just a writer that has a lot of false starts. And so I had written that whole book and I had to get rid of a couple of the characters and give up the idea of these recipes at the end because bad things happened and it doesn't seem appropriate to have a recipe for a Manhattan. Right. <laughs> well, you're just a really deep writer and and it takes a while to do that sort of digging, you know, and I would rather have a story like yours than a recipe any day. <laughs> well, I just love the idea. Here's what I felt. I like the idea. So you can put the recipe in your newsletter. People should sign up for your <laughs> yeah. newsletter. And you do do that sometimes, don't you? Yeah, I do. Here's the, the what I imagine, though. I loved the idea of some, of a woman reading my book in bed at night. And loving the characters because I care so deeply for my characters. I want everybody to like my characters and, you know, be frustrated and, you know, not idolized, but just like them as, as um, fallible human beings. But I just love the idea of somebody reading my book at night and then in the morning, taking it into the kitchen so that they could cook dinner for their family from the recipe at the end of the chapter. (laughs) That would be fantastic. That was my dream, but it didn't work out. (laughs) Okay. Well, maybe the next one it'll, so you're just finishing the book and it'll probably, then you'll have to, you know, who knows what will happen. Okay. Well, we'll have no attachment. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know, but we'll look forward to it. I think everybody who read the story will be looking forward to it. Thank Thank you you so much. Thank you too. Kelly. It was great.